Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. Hey, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Spence. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, I want to tell you uh, a story from my past, not one of my finer moments, but during our time in grad school, uh, Courtney and I were both working at our local church. Uh, we lived about 30 minutes away over in seminary. I was interning with one of the pastors. She was working part-time on her kids' team in addition to her other full-time job. But because it was so far away, we'd often drive together over to the office, right? Uh, we'd drive together. Well, this one particular day, she had a uh, the kids' staff that she was working with had a dinner afterwards. And so we were going to drive separate. So we drove separate. We get to the end of the workday. And of course, we're still newly married at the time. So end of the workday, and we come together, and we embrace with the passion that rivals the heat of a thousand suns. You know, Shakespeare wrote things for that moment and um, said our goodbye, and we would see each other in three hours, should the Lord will it. And um, so off we went, and I started driving home. Well, about 10 minutes into the drive, what do I do? I give her a call, right? Express my undying love for her, and um, she doesn't pick up. Well, no big deal. So about 10 more minutes go by, and I call her again. I'd written a sonnet, you know, about how beautiful she was and wanted to, again, tell her, and um, she doesn't pick up again. And right there, when she didn't pick up after that second call, something happened in me. Now, again, this is not one of my finer moments that I'm sharing with you. In fact, it's one I had largely blocked out. It's one of several moments where I was um, absolutely overpowered by fear overpowered by fear. See, the name for this particular form and expression of fear is anxiety. Something happened in me when Courtney didn't pick up, right? My, my imagination went from zero to a hundred miles per hour about all the worst case scenarios of things that were happening to her or had happened to her in that moment, right? Awful things. And so my heart starts pounding. My mind's racing. I have to pull the car over. And then in my not-so-sane state, I decide, well, obviously the best decision here is for me to turn the car around and speed like a madman to the restaurant where I know she's having dinner at. But because I don't want her to worry about my worry, again, not a finer moment for me, I, um, I pull over into the restaurant parking lot and wait there until she comes out from dinner. When she comes out from dinner, a couple hours later, I was not greeted with Shakespearean sonnets, okay? It was something very different that she had for me. She was, of course, embarrassed and, and mad, right? Her husband had become some weird creeper dude that was sitting in a parking lot. What had happened? All because she had her phone on silent. Not a good moment. And I share that with you because it's not the only time I've squared off against anxiety and lost it is one of my greatest enemies and has been for a long time in my walk with Christ. 
And because of that, it's an area where I am susceptible and have been susceptible to great shame. And yet also, it's where I've come to know God the best. Where facts about God have been transformed into a real closeness with God. And it's where I found sweet victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to share some of that with you today. I want to share some of that with you because I know I'm not alone. In fact, according to the National Institute of Health, 32% of all U.S. adults will experience symptoms of an anxiety disorder at some point in their adult life, right? That means more, almost one out of three of your friends, classmates, family members, colleagues, one out of three will struggle with this. It is the primary mental health problem facing American adults. And it's also the primary mental health problem facing children's and children and teens today. You know this? Children and teens today are five to eight times more likely to experience symptoms of an anxiety disorder than their counterparts during the Great Depression, World War II, and the Cold War. At the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was nothing compared to the level of anxiety children are experiencing today. Fear is crippling our society, and fear is crippling many Christians as well. So today we're going to talk about it. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The setting of Psalm 3 is King David in a cave, surrounded by his enemies, and his faith in God is under attack. And the wonderful thing about today's psalm... <laughs> David's not going to leave the cave at the end of the psalm, all right? This psalm is not about how to get out of the cave. It's about how to invite God into the cave with you, and in doing so, how to find comfort in and victory over anxiety right there in the dark anguish of your soul. We're going to spend the next three weeks in the psalms, uh, a different psalm each week, next week, uh, psalm 22. Um, well, one more after that. Anytime we, we preach through a psalm, we're doing so as a part of an ongoing series uh, that we call Knowing God. And the, high, the idea behind the whole series is, is really simple. It's that you weren't made to just know about God, but you were made to know God. God is not a subject matter. He is a person and he created you to know him like you know a person. He created you to, to draw near to him, to depend on him like you would a person. And see, often people experience, I know this, a big gap between what they hear about in church and then what they experience when they try to apply it in everyday life. They hear about a God who loves them, who strengthens them, who can meet all of their needs. And maybe they get inspired for an afternoon, but then life comes at you and nothing really changes. And that's because head knowledge about God never translated into knowing the one true God. Psalm 3 is so good, so good to help us learn what it means to cross that bridge from knowing about God to knowing God, because it's going to show us how to invite God in to help us deal with fear, one of the most primal emotions we all feel. We all feel it, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read it to you, and then y'all, today, today is really just about the abundance of hope that you can have in fear. I don't even have that many application. I think I have one application point for you 
uh, today. The rest of it is for you to sit and receive the promises of God over you. Whether fear for you is something that maybe like me was, it's small things that can spin out of control, or maybe fear for you is there's some real things that you have in front of you and and you're worried about what's going to be next for them. and, And maybe they could swallow you whole. Listen, there is a great deal of hope for you. Like I said, our context, King David, um, he is in a cave. His son Absalom, as he's writing this psalm, his son Absalom has taken over the throne. And so David is on the run because the, the takeover was a rebellion, right? Absalom wants to kill David. This is real fear, and he offers real hope to anyone that will receive it. So as I read, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to open your heart. Open, if that makes sense to you, like open your mind, open your heart, put yourself in that position where you're ready to receive God's word today. These are God's words to you. This is where the real power is. It's in these eight verses I'm going to read over you. In fact, all the rest of my words that I'm giving you today are just trying to shed light on these eight verses. The truths laid out in this psalm have brought me such profound freedom from anxiety. And not only, look, I still battle it. I do sometimes, but I'm a different man now because of the truths that we're going to walk through today, and I'll talk about it more later. So here are God's words to you from Psalm 3. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. May the Spirit of God stir confidence in the promises of God in your heart today. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through, walk through this psalm and talk about the fear David's dealing with. That'll be the first two verses. We'll just kind of unpack what that fear is. And then the next six just show us uh, how David finds victory in the cave. And just like David spends the most of his time um, focused on God, not on his fear, we're going to spend the big portion of our time focused on God's help in the cave, not just on our fear. But we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. All right, you guys ready? Good, I'm ready. Let's do it. Verse 1, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Look, I want us to begin by acknowledging the legitimacy of David's fear. Again, his son Absalom's got 12,000 men on the hunt for him, trying to wipe him out. Verse 6 says he's not going to be afraid of thousands who take their stand. That's not exaggeration, all right? He's not trying to have dramatic effect. He's right. There are thousands around. I think a lot of time, uh, what happens is worry and anxiety 
are based on, on a good intention, um, considering the reality that is around us, right? Here's a threat or a problem, something I'm seeing, and, and I want to take care of it. I want to make the best of what's happening here, and I'm thinking through that. I love my wife. I want her to be okay, or, uh, you know, that's a, that's a good and right desire that goes awry. You know, maybe for you, it's, I don't want my children to experience any kind of harm. Uh, I want to provide for my family financially, and I can't find a job right now, but... Whatever that is, that often becomes something different, doesn't it? And that's verse 2. Many say about me, there is no help for him and God. This is a little different. He's being told, so what's happening is he's being told that maybe what, what's happened is the Spirit of God has left David just like it left his predecessor, Saul. See, Saul was anointed as king, but then Saul sinned and the spirit of the Lord left Saul. Well, David was anointed as king, but then David sinned. He's got a pretty bad history. He's, you know, had an affair with another guy's wife and then he had this guy killed. And maybe what has finally happened is everything's caught up to him, right? Maybe God has left him. The word help, there's no help for him in God. That word help is salvation, which matters a lot because of how it gets used in verse 8. Verse 1 is a statement based on the, the physical reality. Verse 2 presents a, a deep challenge to his calling from God. David was anointed to sit on the throne. One of his offspring was supposed to rule forever. This right here is not the way this is supposed to go down. And so the opportunity for fear to creep in is there. The cave is almost a physical expression of where his soul could go. You catch that? Spiraling down into a frozen panic. I think we need to pause here and talk about the difference between healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Because there's healthy fear and unhealthy fear, right? Unhealthy fear is the thing that morphs into anxiety and worry. So let's get some definitions. Healthy fear is a reaction to danger. And there's plenty of healthy fear, right? It's self-preservation. It's specific. It's constructive. Um, one very simple example, when um, my kiddos were three, my boys were three and four years old, were at the beach, um, you know, having fun, playing in the water. And there's this video that exists where I am trying to teach the boys how to ride waves, right? And at three and four years old, I think, you are ready, man up, let's do this. So we get them in an inner tube and um, it's this, or I think it's inner tube or raft, can't remember now. But anyways, get them going on the wave and then I back away because I'm like, you're going to do it on your own, right? Sink or swim kind of thing. And Courtney's videoing and I'm like so excited for him. And then of course, what happens? The thing flips over and the video is Courtney yelling, Spencer! And whenever my R is added back to my name, from, so that's when you know, you know she's really serious. And so, Spencer, get them, get them. Now, she ain't moving, right? She's sitting over in a chair. That's another thing. But she's yelling at me <laughs> to go and, and get them. And so then you see me bay watching it as best as I can out into the water to make things happen, right? And get, but it's a specific thing. You got four feet kind of bobbing up and down in the water, and somebody's got to recover them so that they can once again breathe, right? Very specific thing. Healthy fear springs you into action to resolve the specific thing in front of you, right? A specific danger. That's very different than unhealthy fear, than what we'll call anxiety today. Anxiety is after the danger, after the danger is passed, you have this abiding sense that danger still lurks, that it's still kind of there somewhere, somehow, somewhere. Usually it's more undefined. It takes a number of different roads in your mind. It never seems to really go away. Sissy Goff in her book, Worry-Free Girls, which I would highly encourage you um, if you are in any way involved in raising girls um, to read. It defines, she defines anxiety as 
perpetual worry that never quite seems to, to lift. It's just there. I heard uh, the difference between healthy fear and, and anxiety explained like the difference between a thunderstorm and a, a steady rain. A thunderstorm is intense. It's for a short period of time, but then the storm passes and, and the, rain, uh, the rain dissipates. The sun comes out. Anxiety is more like this constant cold drizzle. Right? It's always raining, and if it's always raining, eventually your soul will start to mildew. It's debilitating your body, even physically, the the different chemicals your body creates to deal with danger. If that's always going, your body wasn't created to do that. And so it starts to affect you physically, spiritually, and emotionally. You start to break down when that happens for long enough. David is physically being attacked, and at a deeper soul level, his identity is being attacked. Who he is as it relates to God's promises is now under attack, and he's wondering, should I believe it? It's a thunderstorm. In the moment, it would be really easy for fear to win the day, though, turn into a rain cloud and freeze him entirely. But that's not what happens. In the moment of fear, in the darkness of the cave, David seeks out God. And this psalm takes a beautiful shift for us. And in doing so, it offers us hope in the cave. That's what makes this psalm so wonderful. Watch the process he goes through, because the process David goes through is how we can find strength to let, actually, to let God in his strength carry us from the cave. And all I want to do is offer a lot of hope today for us. If you find yourself in the cave, I want you to have that hope down there with you. If you're not prone to anxiety or worry, but you know those who are, all the better today for you because you can hear today the words of God that you get to give to someone else, to someone in need. Again, only one action step. Let's look at verse three. David starts to show us this process he goes to. He starts to unload promises of God to us that we can receive. You, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. But you, Lord. The psalm doesn't end in verse 2. That's the first thing you got to see. In losing himself over his troubles and letting them win the day again. In the middle of trouble, he says, but you, Lord. David places the Lord God between himself and his trouble. He puts God right there in the middle. They're closing in. There's great reason to fear and all would be lost, but God, in moments of fear, in seasons of doubt, listen, Christian, we are able to look back at the cross and say, there was a time when all hope was lost for me, but God. That's Ephesians 2, 4. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, who was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together through Christ Jesus, but God. In so many ways, that is the Christian testimony, but God. In fact, one of the ways you know that a Christian has forgotten the gospel is we spend so much time looking at others and judging others for the way they're behaving and not behaving like us. What we really should be doing is just looking at ourselves, pointing and pounding a, a hand on our chest and saying, but God, where would I be? But God. And that's so big because listen to me, one of fear's greatest weapons is amnesia. That in the cave, in the moment, maybe your memory will go dark too. Maybe you'll be unable to remember God's faithfulness to you, but David's got it tucked away, tucked away in his heart. He's going to get out to it later, but let's keep letting the, the promises roll in. I want you to write them down. I want you to memorize them. I think for some of you, you should just memorize this whole Psalm. The first promise we see in verse three is that God protects me. 
This is your first promise in the cave. God protects me. A shield around me. So he says that. That, that translation is it's spot on. It means God is the type of shield that a garrison would use that would protect it on all sides as it went into battle, all right, as it goes into the battle. This isn't the, um, the Captain America arm shield. It's like the little circle, you know, or the triangle one for the Infinity War. But, you know, you want to talk about like just a little, little thing there. This is God before me. God behind me, God beside me, God beneath me, God above me. God surrounds me in the battle. Listen, we Christians have a pretty good theology and a pretty good way of remembering that God is with us, but we need to recover the theological mindset that God surrounds us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, yes, but he also covers us. And in your cave, God is not only with you, he has you completely protected on all sides. Think about that for a second. God is more than your companion who is with you. He's your protector. And you might say, yeah, but I don't feel that. Well, that's a different thing. See, what we're seeing in Psalm 3 is that we cannot feel our way out of our fear. Feelings were not designed to do that. They're not the tools for that task. They're not built for that work. What Psalm 3 is showing us is that we pray our way out of our fear. We pray our way out. And prayer starts with where we are. Verses 1 and 2. God, look at what is happening. But then it makes an important shift. And the shift we make from God, look at what is happening is here's what I know to be true. So when our emotions and our thoughts start to betray us, we wrap our minds around what we knew to be true when we were still sane. All right, here's the second promise in that same verse. God is where I find my worth. He is my shield. And the next thing David says, he is my glory. That word glory, it means uh, he's my importance. He's the, the thing that I give the most weight to. He finds his identity, not in what they are saying about him. He says, God, you are my glory. You're where I find the, the weight or importance in my life. What does that mean? It means in the dark cave, he takes stock, not of who he is, but of who God is and what God has said about him. And he chooses that, what God has said, to be the script that he starts to rehearse in his head. He chooses to not let what fear says be his script what God says. God is the sovereign creator of the universe. He is the only one, David is saying, he's the only one who has the currency that my soul is going to trade in. So I'm going to look to him. Look, some of you struggle with acceptance. That's where your anxiety comes in. What if we could say to that, no more? God has called me son, called me daughter. So soul, I will be free from people's opinions of me. Listen, third graders through 12th graders, listen to me. God loves you. He loves you. Your friends, your siblings, your classmates, sometimes your parents are going to say things that hurt you. And it's okay to be hurt by them because words are powerful. But what I want you to hear is that God loves you. And his words and his love are way stronger than anyone else's. And the way you will survive mean words, the way mean words don't become the labels that you start to identify yourself with is remembering what God says to you. You are God's chosen son or daughter. Nobody else gets to say who you are. 
your gods. Here's the next thing David says, still in verse 3. God, you restore me. The lifter of my head. That is such a powerful, intimate phrase. Think about it. He's literally, uh, 2 Samuel 15 will kind of show you the narrative of what's happening, what David's writing from. 2 Samuel 15, he had walked out of town weeping, and everyone who was with him, weeping with his head hung low. It's like a, a combination of a funeral procession and an escape at the same time. It's terrible. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's frightened. And God meets David right there. Right? One of the ways you know you're dealing with unhealthy fear is it has this way of creating shame in you. Like, man, I did it again. I, I couldn't trust God again. I failed God again. Once again, here I am, um, kind of in the, the bottom of this pit where I succumbed to fear and I didn't trust God. And what happens physically, your posture, your head drops. But then God comes along and he lifts up your head. He restores your spiritual sight, your sense of dignity, and your hope. Before he calls you to do anything, you catch this, what, what David's showing us? Before he calls you to do anything, he just comes along and says, my child, I, I love you. And he lifts your head up to meet him in his eyes. Um, I used to, those of you that played sports growing up, I'm sure you had this too. Um, whenever you made a mistake, uh, in the whether it was you know just a, a what we often call a boneheaded play or, um, or whatever else you mess up, I was always and several people are like this. You know, you usually blame yourself and get really down on yourself. And I would do that out on the baseball field, you know, kicking the dirt around, hanging my head. And what would my coach say? Hey, pick your head up. Let's go on to the net. Get them next time. Pick your head up. Right? God is even more gracious. He doesn't say pick your head up. He comes along and does it himself and lifts your head. Let me do that. Let me restore you. That begins in the gospel. When you had nothing that you could offer God, he came for you and restored you back to himself, not because of your worth, your value, what you have done on your own, your worth and what you had earned. No, because of his great love for you. He brought you back. And so now, as you lift up your head, it, it's God himself lifting you up and saying, remember who I say you are. That's the love of God for you. David says, God, you lift my head in the midst of what otherwise would be shame. Verse four, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Ooh, maybe you need to grab hold of this promise today. When you cry out, God, help me. God, look at what is happening and help me. The great promise is God hears me in the cave. He hears you. This is a huge promise when facing down worry and anxiety. He hears you. You don't have to polish up your prayers in order to pray to God. Just tell him what's happening. Tell him what you're dealing with. He will hear you. And he won't just hear you. He will answer you. How do you know? Because God has granted us access. He says his holy mountain, Zion, God has granted us through Christ access to Zion. Jesus has made a way for us to speak to God and to find real help from him. That's Hebrews 4.16. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He hears you. He welcomes you in in your time of need. He calls you to come to him. He restores you, and he makes you whole again. 
Verse 5. Listen to this one. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Here's a promise for you. I'm going to give you a promise, and maybe this is a, maybe a second action step. God sustains me is the promise, so I will sleep. That's your action step. Anxiety and worry have a way of keeping us awake at night, don't they? Of keeping us fixated on the problem. David has found a wonderful blessing in moving from knowing about God to knowing God. From, being, from God just being a subject matter to God being a person, a shield, glory, rescuer, provider, sustainer. He says, because I know God like this, I can actually sleep. So he closes his eyes, which means that like, that's it, right? You close your eyes. You can't even see what might attack you. But he knows the Lord doesn't sleep. In fact, y'all thought about this? Central to Christianity, one of our core tenets, is that we are made in the image of God. All right, that's Genesis 1, 27, 28. Made in God's image. Yet, God doesn't sleep, but he's made us so that we have to sleep. Why, if we're made in God's image, would he not give us the perpetual energy that he has? We'd be more like him, right? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Our physical need for sleep is a built-in reminder that we are not him. We're not him. A reminder that we should not be anxious trying to control things. We should rest and we have to rest in his control. So we should close our eyes. In fact, one of the most dramatic events in all of Jesus' ministry a huge test of faith for the disciples begins and centers on Jesus sleeping through a storm. In that scene, Jesus is more than a teacher to obey. He is an example to follow. He doesn't just teach us have faith in God in the storm. He models what that faith looks like. It's sleeping, right? It's Psalm 127 too. In vain, you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. yes. He gives sleep to the one he loves. The reason David wakes up in the morning is because the Lord has sustained him. The Lord got him through the night in the cave. And I want you to hear that God doesn't sleep so that you can sleep. And it may be one of the greatest acts of discipleship, greatest acts of growing closer to God and trusting God as who he says he is, is to go home today, shut everything down and take a holy nap. <laughs> greatest sermon ever. Yeah. See, this is the... I'm going to get on y'all that are so quick to sleep in a minute. <laughs> I got a friend who used to call his bed um, the word. All right. Now, um, for those of you, uh, listen, that's like Christian shorthand for the word of God or what we call the Bible. He named it that. So then when we got late to work at a church, he could say, man, I was just stuck in the word all morning. Couldn't get out. And we'd be like, wow, he's really holy, you know. Um, <laughs> I think, but I do think, I think sometimes we see sleep as like a, um, as like laziness, like eight hours of sleep. Some people can see that as, as laziness when it's actually a spiritual discipline. Now, I'm not telling you to shirk responsibility and blame your tardiness at work on God, but maybe those hours late at night could be better spent practicing the spiritual discipline of sleep. And if you think, yeah, it's easy to say, but, but even if I shut everything down, I can't turn my mind off. That's a big spiritual red alert. Let, while you are, look, while you are laying in bed and there's darkness all around and you're looking up, let that be your cave. Invite God in. Pray your fears. Pray those things that you are worried about. We are designed to put those into the presence of the Lord and deal with them there. And then let God let you sleep. 
Ask him for rest in your mind and heart. Your body will follow. It's difficult, but it's worth it. Again, I know some of you are like, yes, this is the greatest sermon ever. The pastor has ordered sleep. It'll be blessed, but the prescription is really for those who are going to have the hardest time with it. All right. Some of you are like my wife, Courtney, whose spiritual gift is sleeping. Okay. She could hold seminars. She's not a morning person or evening person. She's a sleep person. That's who she is. Praise God if that's you and you're like her. She's a gift to me in my life, but please keep it to yourself while we warriors are trying to trust God in this area. Okay. Verse six, let's keep going. David says, I'm not going, to be a th- not going to be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Here's the, the one action step. You can already hear it today. Pray your fears. Pray your fears. Don't bottle them up and pretend like they don't exist, nor should we give them the steering wheel of your heart and mind and make you kind of go crazy. Instead, lay them before the presence of the Lord. That is what David is training us to do here. Here's how you can pray Psalm 8 in a sentence. And maybe this is where you start. Again, I would encourage you to just pray the whole Psalm. Or Psalm 3, I'm sorry. Here's how you can pray Psalm 3 in a sentence. God, because you are who you are, I will not be afraid. Because you are who you are, I will not be afraid. Maybe just pray it this week if you're in the cave. This, this is a prayer not just for the cave, of course. This is something we should be praying every day. See what David's doing. He's recited so many of God's promises and then said he's not going to be afraid. His mind was racing with everything coming against him. The first thing he does is he reminds his soul of who God is. And now all the way in verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid. Right? All those truths, all those soul lifting promises through these first uh, few verses. And then he says, I'm not going to be afraid. And even then, who does he call to action? The Lord. He calls on himself to just trust God. He calls God, God, you rise up. God, you save me. What a desperate, powerful prayer that's also available to us. Save me, God. He knows what God can do. God can destroy his enemies. In fact, the reference to striking the cheek and breaking the teeth, several folks that I read said he's evoking the imagery of striking down a wild beast. Because once you remove the teeth of the wild animal, it's mostly harmless. It can't bite you. And if it can, it can't do any real damage. And David is saying, you, God, you bust out the teeth of the enemy so it can attack, yes, but it no longer can do real damage against me. That reminds me of the Apostle Paul's comment about death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Death still comes, yes, but the stinger is taken out. So I don't have to fear it. And listen, the fear of death is one of fear's greatest weapons, isn't it? That looming sense of death. That's the rain cloud that often won't leave for many of you. It locks you up, causes you to helicopter parent, causes you to avoid risks. And Paul says the teeth are taken out of it. How? That's our last verse in Psalm 3, verse 8. David ends his prayer in the single glorious triumphant truth of Christianity. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. So there's your last promise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Let me explain something about how we read this truth, because this truth is even more powerful to us than it was for David. David's writing, he's confident that salvation from his enemies does belong to the Lord. He's confident God is a deliverer, that God's in the cave, that God sustains him in the cave. God has already saved him from bears and lions when he was a shepherd. God had delivered him from Goliath. He knows salvation in this situation belongs to the Lord, just like salvation in any other situation. It belongs to the Lord. But there's another level that you and I get to read this. Vitally important for how we see the Psalms and really how you see the entire Old Testament. Jesus said to his disciples once in this really epic, awesome Bible study that the whole Old Testament was actually about him. The whole Old Testament has this grand overarching narrative, a story telling us about the one God who would save the world from true darkness. See, darkness in scripture, it's a metaphor for sin. We run from God, we rebel against him, we choose our way over his way. The presence of God is light, and we run away from that into darkness. We're lost, and we can't find our way back home without him. So God sends Jesus down to us, into the darkness, into the cave. And he says, I'm your way out. I'm your way out. I can bring you back into the presence of the Father. I'll lift your head. I will pick you up. I will carry you and I'll surround you the whole way. The grand narrative of scripture is that Jesus won the victory over sin and death for us. He took our place so that we don't have to experience true darkness. He came into the cave. He said, hang on to me, I'll save you. The answer to your fear is the victory Christ has won over sin and death. The answer to your fear is to make your home there. Let me close with this, what you can walk out of here with. It's the passage the Lord used to save me from the cave of fear. He met me when I was locked up, um, frozen by anxiety. I was actually at an urgent care because I thought I was having a heart attack. I was actually having a panic attack. And in his kindness, he led me to Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be made known to everyone. Why? The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God. This is for you, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, at first, I was furious at this verse because the worst thing you can say to a person who struggles with worry is, hey, don't worry. Right? It's awful. It's like pouring gasoline onto an already burning fire and saying, stop burning. It's the opposite. But then he gives us warriors something to do. He says, pray. Pray your fears. Give them to God. And now he's telling Christians to do this. Those who have opened themselves to the salvation that belongs to Christ, give them to God. Those who have been rescued from the cave, but you find yourself slipping back there, he says the peace of God that you cannot possibly understand. The only time Paul ever seems to run out of words is when he's talking about the gospel. That's where he seems to just slip into it's a mystery. You won't fully grasp it. It's too great, but it will guard your heart and your mind. It will guard the two most vulnerable places where the enemy wants to attack you. It'll guard you. The peace of God. How? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Christ alone. Think about that song we sing. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He, not me, he is my light my strength, my song, this cornerstone 
this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What height of love, what depth of peace when fears are finally stilled and when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand. In the love of Christ I can stand because he surrounds me. He protects me. He sustains me. He gives me my value and my worth. Nothing formed can come against me because, not because of my strength, because of in the love of Christ, I'm standing. Let me pray for you. I'm gonna give you a second. I just wanna ask you, will you let God into the cave with you? Will you let him in? Just pray. As I'm about to pray this over you, you need to, some of you need to pray it this morning as you begin to allow the Lord in. You say, God, because you are who you are, I will not be afraid. Because you are my savior, I will not be afraid. You are my sustainer, I will not be afraid. You are my glory, I will not be afraid. You are my protector, I will not be afraid. God, I will not be afraid. Not because of my strength, but because I believe you are who you are. And if you've never heard that before, that Christ, that that promise, all those promises to you are only available through Christ. Will you receive his offer to restore you back to God? If you've never received that before, we just tell him, God, I, I recognize now I've been in the darkness of my own sin. I realize it now. So God, I, I receive Christ as my savior. He paid the price for my sins. And because of his death, I can be restored to you. I receive that gift today. Christian who's been struggling with fear, remember Christ. Remember him. Remember your victory there. God, because you are who you are, we will not be afraid. Instead, we will be a people who sing and remember you with great joy and who will lean again into your love and your strength, your mercy, your protection. We love you, Father. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.